Lord God, we praise you. Lord, still our hearts, calm our spirits, focus our minds, our attention, our gaze on you, the risen Savior, our risen Savior. Thank you, Lord God, for the blessing and the privilege of knowing you. It's for your glory that we pray. Be in the words of a mere man that come from your word. Bless the preaching of your word. Bless the hearing of your word. Amen. Beloved, you, we come across things that make us go, huh, why was that written? Where did that come from? Uh, one area are warning labels. I've heard that uh, all warning labels come from some incident or event that caused them, precipitated them. I don't know if that's true. Uh, axiomatically speaking, I think that is pointing in the right direction. One classic example is uh, McDonald's. Uh, I haven't eaten McDonald's fare in many, many, many years. But I do understand that when you buy a cup of coffee from McDonald's, it has a warning label that says, caution, contents may be hot. I mean, isn't that kind of the point? You know, one would think. But I do know that this actually came, this arose from a case in 1994 where a woman spilled hot coffee in her lap from a McDonald's cup and sued McDonald's and was awarded a large sum of money. Or the warning label, and I've seen pictures of actual warning labels on an iron that says, warning, never iron clothes while they're being worn. Uh, presuming there's no serious injury, I would have loved to have been a fly on the wall when the event that made that happen. And those are the kind of things that make us say, why? Why? Why was that written? Beloved, as we continue the beginning of our journey through the magnificent book of Hebrews, we come to find that the author of Hebrews puts angels on the front burner. From chapter 1, verse 4, all the way through the end of chapter 2, verse 18, his topic is angels. It's 29 verses out of 303 total verses in the book. 10% of the entire book is spent here up front on angels. They are on the front burner. And we ask the question, why? They dominate the first two chapters. We encounter them again in chapter 12. And then the famous verse in Hebrews 13, verse Two, do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for by this some have entertained angels without knowing it. So there is a predominance, there's a preoccupation, especially at the beginning of the book, on angels. And we ask the question, why? Why this great attention? Clearly something was amiss. In fact, when we look at the center of 1-4 through 2-18, in chapter 2, verse 1, we see there a great exhortation that the author gives to his audience. Chapter 2, verse 1, he says, For this reason we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. The deadly danger of drift. You see, there was confusion in the minds and hearts of this group of Hellenistic Jewish believers. There was confusion rather than clarity. 
there was a spiritual entropy that had set in, a theological second law of thermodynamics, of going away to greater and greater levels of disorder. And it's into this morass of confusion that the writer gives warnings that have teeth. This is the first of a number of warnings that appears through this epistle. This pastor, this author, pastor, preacher has a heart and a love and an affection for his audience. And because of that, he gives these strong warnings beginning with that one to have them avoid the danger of drift. Now, historically, what the situation was during the intertestamental period, in between the time of Malachi and the beginning Gospels, there was a period of silence where God did not speak. And out of this silence, people weren't satisfied with God's revelation. They weren't satisfied with God's timing. And as a result of this, there were wild speculations that sought to fill in the white spaces of what the people had, and especially around angels, especially in the Qumran community of the Essenes, from which we get the Dead Sea Scrolls. Again, wild, fanciful speculations of angels that were completely unbiblical. And so, beloved, the author opens up this literary masterpiece of this sermonic epistle with this emphasis on angels because the issue was God's people had lapsed into a deafness of ear because of a lack of vision. They had taken their eyes off of God's son. That was the danger then. This is now the danger for us today even is to take Jesus and to squeeze him into the conveniences of our life and relegate him to the recesses of our liking. And there is a danger of things that even can be good things that come in competition. For example, we know that anytime you bring a parallel authority alongside the authority of Scripture, whether it's tradition, church history, the Westminster Confession, a Baptist constitution, when you bring a parallel authority alongside the authority of the Word of God, the Bible loses. And in the same way, Angels will always win the day over a crucified Savior when the mediator is left to the vanity of the human mind. And so, beloved, throughout this wonderful book, the author, pastor, preacher continually and consciously points us back to the person and work of Christ. And for us, in 21st century Western Christianity, very often in evangelicalism, it's very, very common to go right to the work of Christ. And the work of Christ is wonderful, magnificent, glorious, and necessary for the good news. But beloved, we must understand the person of Christ before we can appreciate the work of Christ. So what we see is the author says much about angels, but, however, remember, it is all about the Son. That is our attention. That is our focus. And do not, do not underestimate the person of the Son to your eternal peril or to your eternal joy. Beloved, please 
Follow as I read our passage this morning, our verses 4 through 6. I'm going to read the entire chapter 1 so that we will be reminded where we came from in the first three verses and then in anticipation of what awaits us after in verses 5 and 4. This is the word of God, Hebrews 1 and verse 1. God, after he spoke long ago to the fathers and the prophets in many portions and in many ways, in these last days has spoken to us in his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom also he made the world. And he is the radiance of his glory and the exact representation of his nature and upholds all things by the word of his power. When he had made purification of sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much better than the angels as he has inherited a more excellent name than they. For to which of the angels did he ever say, Thou art my son, today I have begotten thee. And again, I will be a father to him, and he shall be a son to me. And When he again brings the firstborn into the world, he says, and let all the angels of God worship him. And of the angels, he says, who makes his angels winds and his ministers a flame of fire. But of the Son, he says, thy throne, O God, is forever and ever. And the righteous scepter is the scepter of his kingdom. Thou hast loved righteousness and hated lawlessness. Therefore, God, thy God, hath anointed thee with the oil of gladness above thy companions. And now, Lord, in the beginning didst lay the foundation of the earth, and the heavens are the works of thy hands. They will perish, but thou remainest, and they all will become old as a garment, and as a mantle thou wilt roll them up. As a garment they will also be changed, but thou art the same, and thy years will not come to an end. But to which of the angels has he ever said, Sit at my right hand until I make thine enemies a footstool for thy feet? Are they not all ministering spirits sent out to render service for the sake of those who will inherit salvation? Beloved, this is the word of God that has been read in your hearing. Please attend to it as such. Now, In verses 1 through 3, we know that the Son is the creator, the upholder, the purifier, and the ruler of the entire universe. And beloved, he rules and cares, and he gives with absolute authority and superiority. Uh, The Son comes to us in Hebrews as the prophet who speaks finally, as the priest who saves vicariously, and as the ruler who rules triumphantly, and don't take him as anything less. We know, beloved, as well from verses 1 through 3, that the final word is superior to the fragmented word. We know that the personified word is superior to the diversified word that came before. We know that Christ is superior, we saw, to the many prophets before. And, beloved, in verse 4 and forward, he is absolutely, totally, infinitely superior to all the angels. And beloved, what we'll see are three marks in verses four through six, three marks of his deity and superiority. Three marks that track verse four, five, and six, namely his lordship, his sonship, 
in his worship. Beloved, so that our proclamation, your proclamation of Jesus would be governed by these great thoughts so that you and I would see Jesus in far grander, more majestic ways than ever before. Beloved, let's look at verse 4. The first mark of the Son's superiority and deity is His Lordship. He is Lord. He is Lord of Lords. And He has a name above all other names. Uh, First is a reference point. It's a comparison. We see in verse 4, having become as much better than the angels. The angels, beloved, Angels appear some 295 times in the Bible. And God, we know, gives us everything needed to us pertaining to life and godliness. He tells us everything we need to do and everything we need to know about our behavior and our actions and how we should think. He tells us all the information we need. He tells us whether or not we know the author of Hebrews, which we don't. And he tells us everything we need to know about the existence and function and ministry of angels as well. So that we don't need to wander and wonder in unanswered numbness. Beloved, for example, we know angels were, of course, created by God. Uh, When the Apostle Paul wrote to the church in Colossae, in Colossians 1.16, he says, By him, by Jesus Christ, by the Son, All things were created, both in the heavens and on earth, both visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things have been created by him and for him. And the thrones, dominions, rulers or authorities, those are some kind of categories of angels. And we can think of the cherubim. When Adam and Eve, when Adam sinned and they were cast out of the Garden of Eden, God stationed a cherubim with, with a cherub with flaming sword to guard the entrance and the way to the tree of life, lest the man stretch forth his hand, reach out and eat and live forever, even in his unredeemed state. The cherubim are the serving ones. There are the seraphim, the burning ones, like the seraphim that were there that the prophet Isaiah saw. And there are the archangels, Michael, identified as such in Jude. Gabriel is most likely an archangel. Lucifer, before his fall, before he became Satan, was probably an archangel as well. So Michael the warrior, Gabriel the messenger, Lucifer who was the worshiper. And beloved, the angels know the wisdom of God that he created the world, that God in his sovereignty permitted the fall of man. They were there when Adam and Eve were driven out. They were present when God called Abraham and told Abraham that through his seed, God would bless all the nations of the world. They were there, the angels were there on Mount Sinai when God gave the Ten Commandments, the law to Moses. They were there when God spoke to the prophets. They announced the birth of Messiah. They came to Bethlehem and saturated the hills and the valley, singing praises to the babe that was born. Glory to God in the highest and on earth. Peace among men with whom he is 
pleased. The angels watched the life of Jesus. They saw him as a baby being brought back to the temple. They saw him come back when he was 12 years old. They followed his footsteps into the wilderness in his prayers. They ministered to him after his temptation. They heard God say on the Mount of Transfiguration, God the Father to God the Son to the man Jesus, you are my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. An angel strengthened Lord Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. Angels were there at his crucifixion. They watched him die in grief and buried in shame. They were there three days later at his resurrection. One angel rolled aside the stone so that people could go in and see the empty tomb. The angels accompanied him at his ascension. They watched at Pentecost when the Spirit birthed the church. And they see, present tense, they see broken lives healed, guilty pardoned, and the gospel preached to the nations who were once in darkness. They see the kingdom of God spread as multitudes are born again. They see men and women forgiven, redeemed, and cleansed for the glory of God, for the glory of the Son. In our text on angels, here's the crux. Here's the comparison. Having become as much better than. One Greek word, better than. It appears 13 times in Hebrews. This is the first appearance of this. And to the original Jewish believing audience, if you're better than an angel, you're Lord, you're God. A clear statement at face value, right out of the gate of the deity of Christ, of the superiority of the Son. And the author continues, as he has inherited a more excellent name than they. Beloved, this is a name above all names. Now, Paul also, when writing to the Colossians, chapter 2, verse 9, says, God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name. So when we think of the Son, when we think of the second member of the Trinity, he has many, many names. He's the Alpha and the Omega, the Ancient of Days, and the Anointed One. He is, as we will see in Hebrews, the author and perfecter of our faith, the author and perfecter of your faith, my faith. He's the beginning and the end, the bright morning star, the firstborn over all creation, and the first fruits of the resurrection. He is the light of the world and the lion of the tribe of Judah. He is the prince of life and he is the prince of peace. He is the root of Jesse and the resurrection and the life and the way and the truth and the life. But beloved, above all of these, he is Lord. He is Lord. Isaiah 42, verse 8, God says, I am Yahweh. That is my name, and I will not give my glory to another. Beloved, the carpenter from Nazareth is Lord over all. The Son has the power to create the universe in its immensity. He has the power to uphold the universe in its complexity. He rules over all of history, over, over all the space-time continuum. He rules over humans, demons, and angels. 
He rules over powers, disease, and disabilities. He rules over all of the created world, over hurricanes, lightnings, tornadoes, volcanoes, earthquakes, floods. He is sovereign behind them. He rules over solar systems, stars, and galaxies. He rules over molecules, atoms, electrons, leptons, muons, quarks, and even particles we haven't yet even discovered. Beloved, the sun is Lord over them all. And what that means, beloved, for you and for me in Christ is the great and awesome providences are under his feet. The storm and the tempest do his bidding. This means he is sovereign and he is Lord over your times of joy and over your times of pain. He is Lord over all. In the magazine Ha Aretz, uh, the land, Hebrew for the land, on February 28th, in the year of our Lord, 2022, so not long ago, there was an article, and the title of the article was this. Modern humans begin to evolve, and, or began to evolve, and almost immediately split into three groups. And I laughed. Is Mr. Ha Aretz, have you not read Genesis 10? Do you not know of Shem, Ham, and Japheth? The, the unsaved, the unregenerate man seeks to explain what clearly testifies. The heavens declare the work of his hands. And beloved evolutionists, you see, don't know where they came from. They don't know where they're going. They have no explanation for the material world, but the material world is all that they have. So they invest everything in what one day will become nothing but by God's grace and mercy under the mercy and grace and salvation and purification and new life that flows to us through our being from the prophet priest king we understand where we came from we understand where we're going and we understand why we are here for the glory of God for the honor of the son and beloved Dear friend, the created order is temporary and perishing. We, however, are not. And the son who created, the son who upholds, the son who purifies, the son who rules, also has the power to destroy the whole universe. And he will, and he has the power to and will create a new heavens and a new earth. There is no might that can match him. There's no enemy that can equal him. There's no power that can prevail him. He is Lord of lords. Now, beloved, in Revelation 6, when uh, Christ, as the rightful title deed owner of the world, when the seals are broken, when the sixth seal is broken, and there are great earthquakes and great wrath of God being poured out, unsaved people try to hide themselves behind rocks and the unsaved people at that time cry out to the creation to protect them from the creator and there is no refuge from him there is however refuge in him in Christ in trusting Christ and beloved his supremacy is the source of your security of our security that is the first mark Beloved, of the Son's superiority and deity is his lordship. The second mark, as we move to verse 5, is his sonship. And the author moves from his name to his nature. And this is 
the same heartbeat as the Apostle Paul, or excuse me, the Apostle Peter had when he wrote 2 Peter 1, verse 17. He said, When he received honor and glory from God the Father, such an utterance as this was made to him by the majestic glory. This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. He is the Son. And in Hebrews verse 5, the author makes another comparison. At the beginning, he says, For to which of the angels did he ever say, You are my son, today I have begotten you. Now, that little word for there, that tells us it's coming from what we had read before. Verses 1 through 4 is one long sentence in the original Greek. And that one long sentence, verses 1 through 4, is followed by one beefy paragraph from verse 5 to verse 14. And verses 5 through 14 are an exposition of verse 4. But he begins by saying, to which of the angels did he ever say? And it's a rhetorical question. It doesn't need an answer because the answer is known. No angel ever had that utterance given to them. And what he is doing here is he's quoting from the beautiful Messianic Psalm 2, verse 7. Uh, he also will quote, when we turn over a few pages, Hebrews 5, verse 5. We'll have the same quote from Psalm 2, verse 7. And what are we to make of the statement that was made back in Psalm 2, recorded here? You are my son, today I have begotten you. There's no today in eternity. And Aquinas uh, was right when he said this begetting is eternal, not temporal. Beloved, the son, he is eternally the son. And at his incarnation, at his birth, he took on, he, he has always had the nature of God. He was God, is God, and always will be God. At the incarnation, he took on a second nature of humanity and became God in human form. So let's have a little quiz. How many persons are there in the Trinity? Three. How many persons is the Son? One. How many natures does the Son have? On the side of the incarnation, he has two natures, divine and human. That is what is at work here. That is what is at the foundation of this statement in verse 5. And it's the same as what we read in the Gospel of John, chapter 1, verse 18. No man has seen God at any time. The only begotten God who is in the bosom of the Father, he has explained him. That was the statement made of Christ, even in his life and ministry here on the earth. And this is the same thread that the author of Hebrew brings. And as we go to, verse, to the end of verse 5, we read the words, And again, I will be a father to him, and he will be a son to me. This is a quote from 2 Samuel 7, verse 14. So two quotes, one from Psalm 2, one from 2 Samuel 7. I will be a father to him and he will be a son to me. When Samuel, when Samuel spoke on behalf of God to David, that was a statement, that was a promise from God to David and the immediate reference was Solomon. The ultimate reference, Solomon, David's son. The ultimate reference is, of course, the man, Jesus Christ. Beloved, 
And what we have here is this is the first of many lengthy Old Testament quotes throughout the book of Hebrews. And verse 7 and forward will pick this up. And of course, we're still coming to verse 6. And right here at the beginning in just two verses, verses 5 and 6, the author in one sense quotes from the entirety of the Old Testament. Because when you think of the Old Testament, the way they understood the Jewish Bible they had at the time was they had the writings, they had the law, and they had the prophets. And when he quotes from Psalm 2, he's quoting from the writings. When he quotes from 2 Samuel 7, he's quoting from the prophets. And then in verse 6, he'll quote from the Greek translation of Deuteronomy out of the law. And what this author is doing is while he's writing the main message, the main or one main exhortation to this group of Hellenistic Jewish believers is don't go back to your old way. Don't get sucked back in to your old way of thinking when you have a once for all complete, totally sufficient, superior prophet, priest, king, and savior. And even while he is doing that, he is authenticating, affirming, supporting, and pointing them towards the Old Testament. It might make you think of what good Dr. Luke records in Luke 24 after the resurrection when the risen Christ appeared to two disciples that were on the way towards Emmaus. And they didn't understand what was taking place. And Jesus has risen. Jesus has a dialogue, has a dialogue with them. And you, we see in verse 27 of Luke 24 that beginning with Moses and with all the prophets, he explained that to them the things concerning himself in all the scriptures. So from Genesis to Malachi, the living word explained to them the written word. Jesus Christ exposited, taught from the entire Bible they had at that time. Or you can think of Philip. When Philip, when godly Philip came upon the eunuch by the riverside that was reading out of Isaiah, and he asked him if he understood what he is reading, he said, well, no, how would I understand it without someone to explain it to me? And in Acts 8, verse 35, you read these words. Philip opened his mouth, and beginning from this scripture, he preached Jesus to him. Beloved, what the author of Hebrews tells us, what Jesus tells us, what Philip tells us is the Old Testament along with the New Testament is God's word for us today. It is living, it is active, it is sharper than any two-edged sword. So beloved, two marks of his superiority and deity, his lordship and his sonship. We come to verse 6. And we see the third mark, his worship, his worship. What is the chief end of man? To glorify God and to enjoy him forever. What is the chief end of angels? To glorify God, to worship God. Beloved, angels exist first and foremost, primarily to worship and glorify God. And angels don't have thrones. They surround the throne. In even our modern culture, similar to the Qumran community and other people in that intertestamental period of silence, I mean, you can go to any kind of medium, books, magazines, online, rock songs, etc., etc. And it's very clear that the polls that have said that a majority of Americans believe in angels is probably accurate. 
But of course, the information is wrong. It's not based on Scripture. And again, angels don't have thrones. They surround the throne of the risen, ruling, reigning king. Um, as we move to verse 6, it's interesting. We continue this comparison, this contrast. And in verse 5, the author started with angels, then moved to the sun. Here in verse 6, he stays with the sun and then moves to the angels. So at the beginning of verse 6, we read, and when he again brings the firstborn into the world. Uh, the again there is referring to the second coming. So he came first in his incarnation, in his birth. He's coming again. And the second coming of Christ is also referenced by the author later in chapter 10, verse 5. But where we want to focus for a moment is what about this word firstborn? The word firstborn, prototakos, describes his primacy, his supremacy, his authority. Uh, for example, in Jeremiah 31, verse 9, you read the words, Ephraim is my firstborn, despite the fact that Ephraim was born after Manasseh. So it tells us that that word firstborn isn't just talking merely about some kind of chronological order. Uh, in Psalm 89, verse 27, God is speaking of David, and God says, I shall make him, David, my firstborn, watch this, the highest of the kings of the earth. So when it talks about Jesus here in Hebrews 1.6, bringing the firstborn into the world. When we read in Colossians 1 that he's the firstborn from the dead, when we read that he's the firstborn over creation, it's talking about his primacy, his supremacy, and his authority. And then as we go to the last part of verse 6, the author moves from the son to the angels. He says, and let all the angels of God worship him. And Again, because these are a group of Hellenistic Jewish believers, that's why the author quotes from the Greek translation of the Old Testament. I mentioned in previous sermons that I'm very confident that this author, this author, pastor, preacher, was probably extremely skilled with Hebrew. But because of his concern and pastoral care for his audience, he quotes from the Greek translation. That is a translation from, or that, excuse me, that is a quotation from the Greek translation of Deuteronomy 32, verse 43. And that is where, in these two verses, he now completes the trifecta of quoting from the writings, the prophets, and now the law. Also, Psalm 97, verse 7, has a similar rendering in the Greek translation. Having said this, what does this tell us? What does this tell you and me about the Son? We know that God and God alone is the one to be worshipped. In Deuteronomy 6, verse 13, you'll see the words, you shall fear only the Lord your God, and you shall worship him alone and swear by his name. And in fact, Jesus, when Jesus was in the wilderness being tempted by Satan, this is one of the scripture passages that Jesus quoted in rebuking Satan. Or Nehemiah 9, verse 6, beautiful, powerful verse that describes God as the creator of all things and God as creator of angels and angels worshiping God. Listen, Nehemiah 9, verse 6. You alone are the Lord. You've made the heavens, the heaven of heavens, with all their hosts, all the angels and the stars, the earth and all that is on it, the seas and all that is in them. You give life to all of them, and watch this, the heavenly host bows down 
before you. There's, uh, for you men at the men's big breakfast, there's Gary's proskuneo, this heart obedience, this central goal and end and purpose of all of God's creation is to worship God, to glorify God. Or, in our Thursday morning men's Bible study for the super elect men, as we've been going through the Gospel of John, John chapter 9, there was a blind man that was born blind at birth, and Christ healed him. And then the Pharisees and the religious leaders of Israel called the man as their intense hostility against Christ was growing, and they questioned him and dialogue, had a dialogue with him. And it became very clear that this man who was blind at birth was far more wise than the religious leaders. And as a result of that, they excommunicated him out of their synagogue, cast him out. And the loving, great shepherd Christ heard of that and called the man to him. <clears throat> and Jesus gave him greater clarity in, in even the unfolding progression of revelation that we see in that time of transition in the gospel account coming to this man when Christ explains more clearly precisely who he is. And in verse 38 of John chapter 9, and he said, Lord, I believe, and he worshiped him. He worshiped him, and Christ received it because he is worthy. Psalm 103, verse 20. Bless the Lord, you his angels, mighty in strength who perform his word, obeying the voice of his word. Bless the Lord, all you hosts, you who serve him, doing his will. Bless the Lord, all you works of his, in all places of his dominion. Bless the Lord, O my soul. Beloved, turn to Revelation the final book of God's written word. Angels are peppered throughout the book of Revelation, ministering to God, serving God, obeying God during the end times, and worshiping God. Look at chapter 4, verses 6 through 9. Actually, I'll, I'll begin reading in verse 5. Revelation 4 and verse 5. And from the throne proceed flashes of lightning and sounds and peals of thunder. And there were seven lamps of fire burning before the throne, which are the seven spirits of God. And before the throne there was, as it were, a sea of glass like crystal. And in the center and around the throne four living creatures full of eyes in front and behind. The four living creatures are angels. Very likely they are seraphim. Verse 7. And the first creature was like a lion, and the second creature like a calf. And the third creature had a face like that of a man, and the fourth creature was like a flying eagle. And the four living creatures, each one of them having six wings, are full of eyes around and within, and day and night they do not cease to say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and who is and who is to come. And... When the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who sits on the throne, to him who lives forever and ever. Or turn over to one page, chapter 5, verses 11 through 14. 
And I looked, and I heard the voice of many angels around the throne, and the living creatures and the elders, and the number of them were myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, worthy is the lamb that was slain, to receive power and riches and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And every created thing which is in heaven and on the earth and under the earth and on the sea and all things in them, I heard saying to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb, be blessing and honor and glory and dominion forever and ever. And the four living creatures kept saying, Amen, and the elders fell down and worshiped. Or chapter 7, verse 11. And all the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures and they fell on their faces before the throne and worshiped God. And finally, beloved, turn to chapter 22, the last chapter out of the 1,189 chapters in the Bible. Picture of heaven. Revelation 22, look at verses 8 and 9. Uh, Here, John, of course, has been receiving this vision from an angel. And we read in verse 8 John's reaction to the glory and the splendor and the majesty of the angel. Verse 8, Revelation 22, and I, John, am the one who heard and saw these things. And when I heard and saw, I fell down to worship at the feet of the angel who showed me these things. And he said to me, do not do that. I am a fellow servant of yours and of your brethren, the prophets, and of those who heed the words of this book, worship God. That is the message of the angels. That is the ministry of the angels. That is the purpose of the angels. And beloved, that is why you and I, that is why we must be about the king's business. And beloved, In conclusion, as we think of the name above all names, Paul talked about this not just in his writing to the church in Colossae, but also in his writing to the church in Philippi. In Philippians chapter 2, in the great kenosis passage, in the most powerful, intense, incarnational theology in Scripture, where Christ talked about about Christ who is God, the Son who is God, but did not regard equality with God a thing to be clung to and grasped and held onto, but rather emptied himself, took on the the frail flesh of humanity. So the Apostle Paul describes the humiliation of the Son, but then he proceeds from there to describe the exaltation of the risen Savior. Philippians 2 verse 9, Paul writes, God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name. And in Philippians, in contrast to the Colossians, Paul gives us greater insight into the reason why. Because the Son was obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Beloved, Paul ties together the cross and the crown. We know, we know from Genesis to Revelation, we are saved by faith alone apart from the works of that would save us. We are saved by faith alone, not by works, so that no one would boast. It is by faith alone, through Christ alone, by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. However, we are saved by a work. 
by the work of Christ. And it is because the work of Christ is because of the person of Christ. And beloved, the head that was once crowned with thorns is now crowned with glory. That's the reality. That's the indicative. And that's the imperative. That's the command. That's the joy that we have to worship and give him all the glory, all the praise. And as a result of this, we can say, let the fearful look around. Let the pessimist look down. Let the Christian look up. Let her look to Jesus and live. Even as we sang that beautiful song, Behold, the man on the cross. That's the central message of the Bible. That's the central message of Hebrews. May God exalt Christ in our hearts and minds and our practice anew and fresh in great and mighty ways for his glory, for your joy. Please join me, beloved, as we go to the Lord in prayer. Lord God, we are so humbled and amazed, Lord, that you would show favor, that you would come down, be born as a baby, grow up as a child, as a man, tempted even as we are tempted, yet without sin. We praise you as our prophet, as our priest, as our king, as the author and perfecter of our faith. How great a salvation. Lord God, let us never drift away from us. Let us cling to these great truths. May they inform our proclamation. May they illuminate our path. And it is for your glory and for your honor, Lord Jesus, that we pray, that we sing, that we do all these things. And all of your children say, amen.